Good morning, everybody. Um, and again, thank you all for being here. So let me just provide some high-level remarks, uh, and then happy to take your questions. You know, when the president came into office two and a half years ago, he made a very clear commitment to use science and evidence to protect the American people against COVID-19. Today, Dr. Ashish Jha, the White House coronavirus czar, held a meeting with reporters about the end of an era. Now, obviously, we're in a different place now than we were two and a half years ago when the president came into office, right? Um, Hospitalizations and deaths are down by well over 90%. Um, and the secretary made a decision to end the public health emergency because we are in a much better place. But what was interesting to our health reporter, Dan Diamond, was the informality of this gathering, the lack of any fanfare. I think they're slouching into the end of the pandemic. It feels like slouching across the finish line of a race. The White House's national pandemic emergency is closing out not with a bang, but with a whimper. The Biden administration, early in its tenure, had been very proactive at having public health briefings, having a COVID team make lots of public appearances. There was real momentum and energy, not just to fight COVID, but to make the public health system better, to learn lessons. And at this point, everyone is so tired and so burned out that for a lot of Americans, the pandemic was over well before Thursday, May 11th. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Anahat O'Connor. I'm your guest host. It's Tuesday, May 9th. This week, the White House is ending its public health emergency. And today on the show, we're talking about the very real consequences for all of us. The White House held a briefing Tuesday for reporters to talk about what's next in the public health emergency wind-down. It's been in place for about 1,200 days. It has allowed for a number of flexibilities nationally on the state level, the vaccine mandates that the Biden administration had issued for federal workers, for healthcare workers. Those are all ending on Thursday, too. So while this is, in many ways, a bureaucratic procedure, a bureaucratic uh, series of moves, it also has some big symbolism on it. The overall tenor here is not going to be mission accomplished uh, President Biden standing on an aircraft carrier with a banner behind him. They don't want that, and they don't want to be burned if they're wrong and COVID comes roaring back in the coming months. Mm. Yeah, it's striking to me because I seem to recall when Biden ran for president, he made a big deal about the fact that he was going to tackle the pandemic and reduce COVID cases and get everyone vaccinated. And now they're taking all these steps that signal that they think the pandemic is winding down, but maybe it's not really. Um, And I I guess what you're saying is they don't want to have that uh, sort of mission accomplished moment that George W. Bush had that that administration came to regret. So it's, uh, I think a lot of Americans aren't even aware that this may be happening this week. You know, you're, you're talking about the shift in the Biden administration's thinking. If you go back to 2021, there was an official named Andy Slavitt. He helped lead the coronavirus response for the White House. And he had a book in 2021. The title of that book on the pandemic was called Preventable. It was based on the argument that if the Trump administration had done things differently, much of the pandemic's pain could have been prevented. Now, I think that's debatable based on how much we've seen the virus uh, literally infect society, Mm -hmm. even in countries where uh, there were very strict measures to try and hold out COVID. But I think it's fair to say that the hopes of the Biden administration, that this would be easily dealt with, that they could show 
uh, coronavirus was solely a Trump administration issue, that that hope has been demolished. There have actually been more Americans who have died during Biden's tenure than during the Trump administration's tenure. But then you're also comparing one year of coronavirus under Trump to more than two years with Biden. Dan, so what does the end of this emergency actually mean for the average person? I mean, if you take a walk around outside, it feels like for most people, the pandemic is already in the rearview mirror. You know, you rarely see anyone wearing masks in public places these days. And if they are, it's kind of striking. I have to admit, last week, you know, I had a a runny nose and a slight cough and fever, and my wife told me to test for COVID, and the thought hadn't even occurred to me, I have to admit. Um, So, you know, for the average American, are we going to actually notice any dramatic differences after this week? So, Anahat, I'm not sure the average American noticed when the public health emergency first took effect. I remember vividly, because I I covered it at the end of January, going into a coffee shop the next morning, black coffee, Mm -hmm. uh, up on MacArthur Road in D.C. to meet a source. (laughs) And I felt like I was one of the only Americans paying attention to this. The coffee shop was bustling. I had to explain the coronavirus to the person I was meeting with. I then had to like run back to the office because there was a breaking coronavirus news story. And I actually went back to that coffee shop this weekend. So that's it's kind of in my mind now. And again, the coffee shop's bustling. No one's wearing a mask. Mm. But I, I do think that there's a disconnect between public health emergencies and declarations and the ways that Americans are actually feeling this impact their lives. For a lot of Americans, I think the pandemic ended a long, long time ago. Uh, they went back to work. They got COVID for the first time during the Omicron wave in 2021 and 2022, and it wasn't as bad as they, they thought it was going to be. Um, and maybe that's because they'd been vaccinated. But regardless, once COVID swept over America, I, I think in late 2021, early 2022, that was a signal change for a lot of reasons. People who had avoided COVID up until that point had been exposed. People who got infected had more protections. The Biden administration tried last year to make sure we didn't have another bad COVID winter. And while we had a lot of other illnesses circulating, COVID did not spike the way it did. So there were a lot of kind of mini signposts on the way to getting to the place where the public health emergency would be lifted. I do think for the average person, the impact of lifting the emergency at this point comes down to things like free COVID tests. Some of the free COVID tests are not going to be available now. Mm. And then if you're on Medicaid, which is the safety net health program that grew a lot during the pandemic, there were rules in place to make sure that if you were covered by Medicaid, you couldn't be easily kicked off. Those rules are already being unwound, and tens of millions of Americans may end up losing Medicaid as a result. Now, Dan, you, you touched on this a little bit, but, you know, the pandemic emergency infused a lot of extra resources into healthcare, care, um, public benefits programs to support people during all of this instability. Uh, I'm a parent of a four-year-old and I, I cover nutrition, so I know free school lunches was something that was affected by this emergency measure, and, and that ended a while ago. Can you dig into some of the details of how some of these programs are going to be affected and how people will see these changes in their lives? So during the pandemic, there was a real push by Congress and and local and state officials too to strengthen the safety net, to make sure that people who needed, whether school lunches uh, or or to delay their mortgage payments, that these things would be 
lifted. Of course, there were downstream benefits too. If you were receiving one of those mortgage payments uh, that that was now delayed, that caused a lot of pain for you. If you wanted to evict a tenant and you couldn't evict that tenant, that, that could be a problem as well. But Medicaid to me, Anahad, is one of the biggest changes that is going to be coming. It, it has already begun this unwinding process. But Medicaid had had swelled in part because people who maybe didn't fill out the paperwork couldn't be booted from the program. Uh, they got to stay on Medicaid. Now that is changing. So across America, and different states have different ways of going about this, but likely 10 million, 15 million, maybe more, maybe less, uh, Americans will end up losing coverage in the coming months. That's a lot of people, and it has ripple effects down the line. If you are one of the doctors seeing a Medicaid patient who suddenly becomes uninsured, if you're a hospital who suddenly has more uninsured patients, and of course, if you're the patient whose care is interrupted and has challenges. We also know that when people have lost Medicaid in the past, I'm thinking of some research by uh, Harvard's Adriana McIntyre, that those folks who end up getting kicked out of the program because they didn't fill out paperwork, it's not necessarily because they found health insurance elsewhere. They just didn't get around to doing the paperwork. Mm-hmm. They, they might be a busy young mom or someone working two jobs to make ends meet. So there are people who will be losing health coverage as Medicaid unwinds, and they almost certainly won't be able to find it easily. And maybe they'll end up back on Medicaid in the mm-hmm. coming months when they have to fill out the paperwork again. But it sets up for a pretty big disruption. Again, that is already happening. It, it started before the May 11th end of the public mm-hmm. health emergency. But because there was this broader push to strengthen the social safety net, we are seeing all of these things unwind right now. And, and how will this all affect uh, vaccines and treatments and booster shots? I mean, my wife and I just scheduled an appointment with our pediatrician to get our four-year-old son a booster shot. Does this mean that that won't be free? Will regular booster shots be phased out? How will this all affect that? So when it comes to COVID vaccines and treatments for the foreseeable future, it looks like these will still be available and covered if you have private health insurance. The Biden administration recently announced a program to cover vaccines and treatments for uninsured Americans. There's some question, Anahad, whether that will actually survive. There's a bigger debate in Congress over clawing back money that was pledged for COVID but not spent. So there's a chance that the White House will make a deal, this is around the broader debt ceiling negotiations, to give back some of that COVID money. And that might deliver a blow to the uninsured access to COVID vaccines and treatments. But overall, for most Americans, COVID vaccines and treatments will continue to be available, continue to be paid for by insurance, and in theory, there shouldn't be out-of-pocket payment for them. Now, we also know that a lot of the pandemic policies had to do with travel, which was a really controversial issue, um, and requirements for entering the United States. What's changing on that front? There are a couple changes that are in the offing. One would be the lifting of a vaccine mandate around travelers coming into the United States. This has gotten a fair amount of attention because Novak Djokovic, the unvaccinated tennis star, wasn't able to come to a number of tournaments in the United States. Ron DeSantis, the Republican governor of Florida, had even joked, or maybe not joked. I would run a boat from the Bahamas here for him. I would do that 100%. But that he would get a boat to bring Novak Djokovic in to kind of circumvent the, the international flight uh, travel requirements. I'm not sure that's the way they want to come into the, into the country, which I understand. So that vaccine mandate is set to be lifted Thursday, May 11th. But then there's also an important immigration policy, what's known as Title 42. 
This began under the Trump administration. It was imposed as an argument to protect against virus coming into the country at the border. So migrants have been turned away uh, before being able to make their case for asylum at the southern border in particular. This was the brainchild of Stephen Miller, the former Trump official, who I think it's fair to say anti-immigration official, but it has been continued by the Biden administration in part because of fears of crowding at the border, migrants uh, coming into the United States in a way that the past three administrations, the Trump administration and the Obama administration before it, had a number of political and, and public policy questions around their migrant response. At this point, I think Title 42 is more about immigration policy than public health policy. But that, too, is set to be lifted, and that might mean there are more migrants coming in at the southern border again. After the break, we'll talk about what's happening with the coronavirus itself on a public health level rather than a policy level. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Now, Dan, I think it's important for our, our listeners who might be wondering, you know, if these emergency measures are ending, should people be under the impression that COVID is no longer serious or that the virus is no longer circulating as much? What's, what's happening on that front? So COVID overall is not the threat it was. I think we need to be clear about that. The number of deaths attributed to COVID have plunged. I believe we're down to about 150 to 200 deaths per day this year. In the peak of the pandemic, there were thousands of deaths being linked to COVID. But 150 deaths to 200 deaths per day is still a lot. And if you're projecting out the number of deaths from COVID this year, 2023, it looks likely that it will still be a top 10 cause of death, maybe number seven, number eight. That's a lot of pain. And that will be a lot of complications too for people who are still getting sick from COVID and in some cases severely. I spoke to a doctor in Boston who said, yes, she's seen uh, older and immunocompromised patients who are, are more susceptible to COVID. But she also had just seen a woman in her 30s who was otherwise healthy, who had a really bad case of COVID that had landed her uh, in the ICU. So it can still, if you draw the unlucky card, there are times when COVID can still deal significant pain, even if you are a 35-year-old healthy person. But it is important to underscore Overall, COVID is not the threat it was at the height of the pandemic, and that is another reason why we're moving out of the emergency. Mm. And I think the CDC got a reminder uh, fairly recently about the fact that COVID is still present and a danger when there was an outbreak at the CDC recently, wasn't there? Yes, this was a Washington Post scoop that uh, at the annual conference of the CDC's own disease detectives at the end of April in Atlanta— there were dozens of confirmed cases of COVID. And these are the same people who respond to outbreaks. Now they have to probe an outbreak at their own annual conference. The fact, Anahad, that there are several dozen cases confirmed, to me and others, suggests that there are probably many more cases that will be uh, discovered as the probe continues. So far, have not heard of any bad outcomes 
many of these people are younger uh, staff who are joining the disease detective program. But still, the fact that the CDC can't hold a conference Mm -hmm. in 2023 without its own staff getting infected by COVID, to me, there are a couple important takeaways there. One being, what does that say about the state of COVID more broadly uh, and, and how much it's circulating, even if we're not reporting our, our tests that we take at home? And two, should we rethink mm. uh, what it means to have in-person conferences? And, and my understanding is small rooms with no airflow at times. Should the CDC be the paragon? Should they set an example and do conferences like this in a more safe manner to show that they can be done? And it makes me wonder, you know, with, with this happening and, you know, what we're seeing with cases, is there a danger that the administration is becoming too complacent? Are, are there, you know, critics or other public health experts who are raising concerns that perhaps the administration is letting its foot off the gas too soon and could be caught flat-footed if there's another flare-up or if things get worse? There are COVID advocacy groups and patients who are dealing with long COVID symptoms who are unhappy about the Biden administration ending the public health emergency before more things to protect against future surges have taken place. One might be the White House is supposed to stand up a new office of pandemic preparedness. As of now, there is no formal director for that effort. There are also real questions about what happens if there's a surge of COVID later this year. Who's leading that response? There's not going to be an Ashish Jha. There's no COVID coordinator after this coming week who will step in and coordinate the response. So I think the fear is that there would be some other surprise around the corner. We've been burned too many times with variants that evaded treatments and vaccines that we had developed. And I had spoken to some experts who had warned the White House of this in recent weeks. The consensus was there was about a 20% possibility of another Omicron-like wave. Because we already know that these variants are developing in likely immunocompromised people and, and showing up in wastewater around the country. So there are true frustrations with this end, but I will say there are lots of public health experts who feel generally good about moving out of the public health emergency. They are also hopeful that some of the initiatives that the White House is standing up will survive and get us to a new place to protect against the next virus. Mm. So what exactly are they doing? One initiative is Project NextGen. This is a $5 billion program that would invest in new treatments. So some of the treatments that have been developed to fight coronavirus have very quickly become obsolete. New vaccines that would produce what's called mucosal immunity, strengthening the protections there. And then also universal Uh, COVID vaccines. So SARS-CoV-2, the current coronavirus pandemic, note the two, Anahad, this is the second SARS-like virus we've had to deal with in the past 20 years. The first one was pretty deadly. It led to hundreds of deaths, thousands of infections before it was contained. It's quite possible that we will be fighting another coronavirus in the next 20 years, maybe SARS-CoV-3. So a universal coronavirus vaccine that helps not only with this pandemic, but with future ones. And I should also amplify. These goals by the White House may not be hit. These are future technologies that don't necessarily exist. The goal of having a universal flu vaccine has never been realized. So can we really get a universal coronavirus vaccine? But the goal is we need to be ready in some form 
for the next threat, and this would be a program that helps get us there. Okay, so Dan, zooming out and looking at the bigger picture, you know, we're thinking about where we're at in the pandemic and where we're headed. Um, This White House leadership team is dissolving. Now, you've been speaking to people on this team about what this all means. What are you hearing from them? Anahad, I think there's hope that the trend lines, which look good, will continue. And I spoke recently with Dr. Thomas Sai, who had been the COVID testing and treatments coordinator until about a week or so ago. And his his analogy was... The analogy I like to think of is, again, I'm a, I'm a clinician, I'm a surgeon, is you know thinking of the country as a patient. A patient who was critically ill in 2020. You were in the emergency room, you know, trying to understand, you know, what was going on with COVID-19, you know, uh, trying to diagnose the problem. Into 2021, a patient that needed to be stabilized. To an intensive care unit in the hospital. But over the course of uh, 2021 to 2022, as vaccines became available, as testing became more available, uh, treatments uh, became available, uh, the patient, um, you know, was transferred out of the ICU. So if you've ever been in the hospital for a serious condition, uh, a surgery perhaps, and now you are phasing down the number of people who need to pay attention to you, (laughs) kind of fades away, the amount of work that you can do on your own ramps up. And what May 11th is, is a discharge date. It's a discharge from the acute phase of the hospital. Uh, but that also means that we're entering post-acute care so that there is still ongoing um, rehabilitation, recovery, um, and preparedness. And I, I think that's a decent analogy. We can't treat the COVID public health problem as an emergency that governs every part of our lives the way that we did and and deservedly did at the beginning of this pandemic. But we can't forget about COVID either. It needs to be a concern that we're responding to. And I think that's the point Dr. Sai was trying to make. Mm. So you're ready to be discharged from the hospital. You're meeting with the nurse who's giving you your sort of outpatient instructions, going over the list of medications you need to take, and you're sort of, they're sort of gently guiding you off out into the world. But they're still going to be monitoring you, and there's still things you have to do. It's not over yet, but it's looking good, I suppose. And I suppose critics would say that the White House hasn't done enough to prepare for that discharge. So there's some debate there over whether the, the patient is being discharged with as much support as, as he or she needs. Mm. Now, how will the end of this emergency phase impact our public health system? I mean, we saw during the pandemic that the healthcare system was pushed to the brink um, now we just learned that the director of the CDC, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, has announced that she's stepping down next month. Why now and what effect might that have? I think public health infrastructure is overall weaker today than it was at the beginning of the pandemic, which I wouldn't have predicted. Uh, back in 2020, there was real respect and, and veneration of public health leaders, whether Dr. Fauci or or local leaders. At this point, trust in public health agencies has fallen. There are questions about vaccines on the rise, not just COVID vaccines, but all vaccines. So the public health system is is not in a great place. Dr. Walensky, the CDC director, said she'd be stepping down in June. We had some reporting at the Washington Post that back last year and that the White House was thinking about making a change around Rochelle Walensky. But there have been several 
public faces of the Biden administration response. And those faces are increasingly leaving the public stage. Tony Fauci's already retired. Rochelle Walensky will be stepping down. Sheesh Jha, the coronavirus coordinator, is leaving in the next coming days. So I, I think, Anaha, there are kind of symbolic uh, ways that this is resonating in addition to the practical question of who's going to be leading the CDC and who's going to be leading the coronavirus response if it surges back later this year. Mm. Now, Dan, on a personal level, you're a parent, I'm a parent. Um, I talked about how I'm uh, signing my kid up to get a booster shot next week. Um, you have a five-month-old. What precautions, if any, are you still taking? And how do you make those decisions? Like, for instance, whether to get a booster shot or not. You know, as a new parent uh, of, of a five-month-old, it's not like there are a whole lot of social opportunities I'm turning down <laughs> at this point. First off, I, I hope you're getting enough soup. <laughs> And and definitely not on that front. But I, I think what we're doing on Ahad is, is um, kind of twofold. First, we are continuing to be pretty careful about the number of interactions we have and, and how we have them. So I would not have gone to, say, the White House Correspondents' Dinner a few weeks ago here in D.C., just given the number of people indoors, the fact that lots of people got COVID last year. It's not just about me getting COVID and spreading it to my kid. It's me getting sick and not being able to <laughs> easily care for my yeah. kid because I either need to isolate myself or I'm, I'm feeling so ill that I can't help out around the house for some days, which at mm. this point, I got I got a bad case of uh, norovirus uh, early in, in the parenting. And yeah, I was just wiped out for a few days and it completely destroyed <laughs> our, the fragile dynamic we had of, of handing off care. Um, but when I'm in a public place that's crowded, yes, I, I still wear a mask. I'm in the office today. I think it's important to be in the office and see people face to face. But if I'm around a bunch of people in the office, I will still wear a mask. I don't mind it. And if I'm having family and friends over, uh, like we did this weekend to see the baby, uh, if it's a small crowd and everybody's reasonably healthy, then yes, like masks come off and people can play with the baby and be be indoors. But this morning before coming into the Washington Post office, I was feeling a little sniffly. So I took a COVID test, which I still do. We have, we have leftover COVID tests from earlier in the response. And that's not just about me being sick. It's I don't want to be the person spreading the virus. So for me, COVID is something I still think about every day, but it doesn't govern my life the way that it did earlier in the pandemic. Mm. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. Anahat, thanks for having me, and I look forward to, when we get off this podcast, picking your brain about how to be a good dad. Dan Diamond covers health policy for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Alana Gordon. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Maggie Penman. If you love the show, help other people discover it by leaving a rating on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anahat O'Connor. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 